Welcome to the Road to Zero podcast. I'm your host, Nick LeBlanc, founder of Network Potential Consulting. We're here to explore the fast-emerging zero-impact economy, which is transforming the way we do business, bringing prosperity and regenerating the natural world in the process. And I invite you to look at how you can position your business at the forefront of this global movement. Today on the Road to Zero, we're talking to Daniel Hoft, founder and CEO of Kelp Blue, joining us from Namibia. Welcome, Daniel, and thank you for being with us. Thank you very much, Nick. Pleasure to be with you. So first question I want to ask you is that you, you, you're someone who's had a, an extensive uh, uh, career in the oil industry with a lot of ex- experience there. What got you interested in kelp production? Well, uh, yeah, it's, a, it's, an interesting, it's an interesting story. I, I, was, I sort of got into the oil industry by accident as well. I was a sculptor before I joined the oil industry and was working in Amsterdam doing figurative realist sculpting, which is uh, not that popular, and suddenly thought to do great art, um, perhaps one needs more exposure to the sort of life and death parts of, uh, of life while you know, living in Amsterdam is quite comfortable among freelancers life tends to become slightly navel-gazing. And so I went and my girlfriend at the time was working for Shell, and she said, why don't you go and spend some time in the drilling industry and see some of the world? And so I applied and I, I got a job and, and slowly this sort of hobby took over because I enjoyed it and I was good at it. And the oil industry is great in terms of the opportunities it gives you to travel the world and meet phenomenally interesting people and be very sort of outcome focused and uh, you know particularly in this time where the oil and, oil and gas industry gets a bad rap i think we mustn't forget that for for many decades people in the oil and gas industry saw themselves as playing this instrumental role in making affordable energy available to to large parts of the planet so it was it was an inspiring time um in many remote areas, in Nigeria, in Russia, in uh, Jordan, in Sweden, in Gabon, Australia. So you see all sorts of parts of the world and you're always busy with big projects and exciting new stuff. But over time, the combination of working for a big corporate, which has its frustrations, but particularly the sort of realization that although... You know, people who work for big oil companies are just like you and I. They also want to see a beautiful green planet that is as gorgeous as it was or for themselves. Um, the impetus for change, I realized, was not going to come from there. The, the pressures of business as usual, the fear for change, the pressures of the perceived pressures of the financial industry just mean that they find it very difficult to change, as all large organizations do. So I had been casting around for something more meaningful to do for quite a long time. Um, and at some point, my wife went to a lecture uh, by an Australian scientist called Tim Flannery, who's been proselytizing. I mean, originally, the man was a, a mammologist. Um, so in, in the 80s, when he was a young man, he, he was traveling around Papua New Guinea and Irian Jaya uh, in the jungles and you know getting all sorts of diseases and, and discovering unknown mammals for Western science. I mean, the, the locals all knew these mammals existed, of course. And 
Later in life, he became the head of the Australian Science Institute and has spent the last 10 years proselytizing about the role of seaweeds in drawing down stock carbon, uh, while at the same time boosting biodiversity in the oceans. And the, the concept fascinated me, and it took a while. I mean, I, I started just researching it out of autodidactic interest. It took a while before the penny dropped that this was something that I that I could do, that this is an industry that's, that's stuck in many ways in the technologies of 400 years ago when the Japanese started cultivating seaweed. And that if done at scale, that his, his idea of using seaweeds at large scale to cultivate, to farm the oceans, to draw down CO2, to create biodiversity could actually be coupled with a, a profitable industry, which I think is essential if you want to do something sustainable. You need to be able to pull in the capital and, and have, a, have it move forward on that basis. So, okay, once, so once I came across that idea, it, it didn't in fact take long. It, uh, I took two months obsessively researching in my free time everything I could about kelp. And then on my birthday, about two years ago, I decided this is it. I resigned. Took a while to, to, to uh, get free from the oil industry for various reasons and then uh, set this company up early in 2020. Now, what's the goal of Blue Kelp? What, what exactly is your business model? What are you trying to accomplish specifically? So Kelp Blue is, is really focused on two things. One is the rebalancing of the ocean's geochemistry on a, on a local scale but potentially on a regional uh, scale once you, if, if you can achieve the crazy ambition of doing this at really vast scale, and if it makes sense to do so, which, which I think is yet to be proven, but we, we have a great hope that, that it might be one of the positive things that humans can do. Uh, and the other is the biodiversity impact that comes with it. So wherever you grow kelp, um, you see an enormous sort of ecosystem pyramid developing. And while kelps on rocky substrates, you have an even richer uh, ecosystem. Even when farmed on ropes, you, you do see an enormous uh, boost to all sorts of species that like to thrive in it. Besides the fact that you're, you're physically protecting that piece of real estate from overfishing, from any kind of fishing at all. And so you're creating this little havens of, uh, of uh, biodiversity, which in an ocean context where eggs and spores of, of creatures can move over vast distances, the hope is that that has a, a regional and maybe even sort of oceanic scale impact once you scale it up. So those are really our core objectives is to, to draw down enormous amounts of carbon, um, to improve the chemical balance of the ocean, uh, and to stimulate biodiversity in a very artificial sense, but the ocean needs all the help it can get. Uh, and, and to be able to do that, it has to be profitable. So we, we need to suck in capital to do it. Capital is blind. I think despite the notable in increase in impact funds, once push, once push comes to shove, they do need to make a return. So if we can provide returns, frankly, I don't really care whether people's motivations for putting the money in are honorable or not. That money is needed to make the planet a better place. And if, if, we, if, if we are right that we can do so, then, then I, I think it's an important role we have to play. Yeah, what, what I find interesting is how compared to regular agriculture that usually has a, a fairly deep impact to the environment. This is the kind of 
agriculture that's even more than generative. It really, uh, like you said, increases biodiversity, increases the habitats. I definitely hear the biodiversity case. And what exactly is the business case? How are you creating money out of this agriculture? What kind of products are you making? What 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 are you focusing on? So there are a number there are a number of applications for extracts from seaweeds and seaweeds. Bear in mind, seaweeds are, are very diverse. You get red, brown, green seaweeds. They're a bit of a bucket in which a lot of um, plant-type creatures from the sea have been dropped. So it's there's there's a genetic diversity that that is vast. But the brown seaweeds that we're cultivating have a number of characteristics uh, that have to do also with how they've evolved. So the the rapid growth means that they are, they are chock-a-block with growth hormones that stimulate that. Some of those have the same activity in land plants from which you know, we all descend from seaweed. And then the sea is a very hostile environment. So all, all life forms in the sea are also chock-a-block with various bioactive compounds that act against the viruses and hostile components that are, that are after them. And again, some of those have very beneficial impacts on either plants or humans or animals. So there are a number of extracts that we can use aside from the sort of commercial ones. And to cut a long story short, the North America has been obsessed or the U.S. has been obsessed with biofuels from seaweed ever since 1974 or six, I think, when, when DARPA developed the concept of using biomethane from seaweeds to avoid dependence on uh, on OPEC states. And that sort of lingers, but there's a poor business case for it. It's a vast volume market, uh, but the, the costs are just very high to convert it into essentially a, a dirt cheap product. And, and that's really my background. So, so oil and gas is produced for cheaper than bottled water. So com- competing with that is difficult as a business case. It also seems futile because I think we really need to move. Moving to decarbonization, to me, doesn't consist of replacing geological hydrocarbons by biofuels. That we may need some of that to make the transition fine, but it's it's an interim step. So we're focused on the what we see as the next biggest sort of big, relatively low value market, but big enough to absorb the volumes we're going to do, which is biostimulants, which is a complex subject. We could talk about it for hours, but biostimulants generally is a, is a nomer for the sort of growth hormones, the products that increase the robustness and resistance to diseases of plants. So when you take a seaweed extract and you give it to seedlings, you'll see better root growth, you'll see better fruit growth, flowering, but you'll also see a, a resistance against certain viral or bacterial or fungal activity and notably in the case of giant kelp that we're we're cultivating, what you see is also a huge positive impact on stressed crops. So whether stressed by drought or by diseases, a small prophylactic application of uh, of this extract will assist these plants in uh, in recovering very rapidly. So that's the that's the the core product that we're we're focused on. Um, and then afterwards come a variety of products, alginates, which are like a gelatin substitute used in, in to keep the foam of your beer stiff, to keep the fruits in suspension in your yogurt, to keep your toothpaste from, from becoming a sort of mix of runny and solid, but also used as, as, as sterile um, uh, and naturally antiseptic wound dressings. So very commonly used product 
which is underutilized and, and the market potential for it is 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 vast. The problem is that to date it's been sourced from wild uh, harvested seaweed, which is an erratic and and both in volume and in quality an erratic market. And then as you go on, you've got polyphenols, fucoidins, which are cosmetic or pharmaceutical compounds, which are some of which are quite mag- magical, some of some of which do like anti-cancerous stuff. Polyphenols are, are the plant's natural protection against UV, which is a great substitute for the sort of UV protection that we use in many cosmetics. So the, the applications are vast, but we're really focused on the biostimulants market to start. Okay, so lots of potential, and especially those, those additive biotech. So it sounds like there's a, a whole host of projects uh, you can have coming out of there. And when you look at the carbon impact of this type of farming, what uh, what's the impact? Is there because I, I, I know some projects are looking at kelps and seaweeds for actually carbon sequestration. How does that fall into what you're currently doing? Yeah, it's a it's a big part of what we're doing, and it's quite a complex. Um, it's quite a complex. Uh, carbon pathway to prove. And the reason for that is as follows. If you take a tree, it measuring how much carbon it takes from the atmosphere and converts into organic carbon is straightforward. A tree is about half carbon. So you weigh the tree. Okay, you need to cut a tree to do that, but you weigh the tree and you know that and you can extrapolate for other trees. And then you can measure how much of the, the carbon is being built up in the humus, so the, 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 the topsoil below the tree. And that's fairly straightforward to do, all things being relative. Going to measure, uh, take, a, take a ground sample under a tree is, is, is relatively straightforward. Kelp forests are doing the same. So they're drawing down carbon from the ocean primarily. So there's already an ocean buffering complexity that happens there. They're, they're drawing dissolved carbon. They're drawing bicarbonic acid rather than drawing carbon directly from the ocean, from the atmosphere. But already measuring the, the volume of carbon in that kelp is already relatively more complex because a tree will turn over its own biomass maybe 0.6 to 1.2 times a year, meaning that it produces extra carbon that drops away as leaves and the total aggregate mass balance of that is about 0.6 to 1.2. Kelps do that. 10 to 12 times a year is, is the first assessment. So, so measuring that already becomes much more difficult in addition to the fact that you've got a plant that's in the water, how do you cut it, weigh it, et cetera. But all that's re- relatively straightforward. So, so mapping how, to, how much carbon is being taken out of the oceans is one. What's more complex is where it goes. So the, the sequestration pathway is very different. What we are looking at is the hopefully a uh, very large sequestration that these plants have that are sort of geological timescale sequestration. And the mechanism there is that kelps slough off dissolved organic carbon, much like you and I are sloughing off skin cells continuously. If the healthier we are, the more skin cells we slough off. It's, it's a sign of a healthy human being. You're replacing old skin cells. And the plant is doing the same when it's healthy. It's sloughing off immense amounts of skin cells, which are dissolved bits of carbon that float away. And if those bits of carbon end up in deep ocean sediments, and we know that a lot of them do, then that carbon is really sequestered on a geological timescale. In fact, what you're doing is you're, this is the creation of the oil and gas fields of the far distant, distant future. So there's the dissolved organic carbon, and then there's bits of plant, much like leaves fall off trees. There's leaves that fall off these kelp plants. 
and if those also make their way into sufficiently deep sediments, they're essentially, uh, for our relatively short time frame, human scale thinking, and, and certainly for the climate change challenge we're talking about now, they are sequestered forever. And so the mechanism is well understood, but now imagine how complex it is to prove that, because a tree is dropping its leaves in its close vicinity generally, with a few storms aside. A kelp plant that is in the open ocean is dropping this into currents that are going at one, two knots, and that tend to drag everything off to the deep oceans, which is good. That's where they sink to deep sediments. But how do I go and measure that? Now, taking a soil sample under a tree is one thing. Taking one a thousand kilometers away from my farm in 3,000 meters of water depth is quite a different challenge. So the challenge here is, is to, to, to improve the scientific consensus around how much of this kelp-driven organic carbon is being reconsumed before it makes its way into deep ocean sediments and how much is ending up there. And even if that percentage is very small, the, the numbers are vast, the, the potential for sequestration, the scientific consensus seems to be narrowing around a potential for sequestration that is on the order of magnitude of sort of eight to 10 times as much as tropical rainforest. If that's true, and there are skeptics and there are scientists who claim that it's zero, and there are scientists also who claim that it's 10 times as much, but if it is true that that consensus is narrowing around a figure that's 10 times as large as uh, tropical rainforest, then we really are talking about a nature-based solution that has huge potential to have a really rapid impact on what arguably is you know, our, our biggest challenge at the moment as, as, uh, as the human race. So you've got a process where you generate these products in a, in a let's say, a carbon-negative fashion. So you know these these kelp will, will sequester the carbon and I guess the complexity is just figure out exactly how much. It's hard to put a number to it, but at least the yep. process itself, you know you're increasing biodiversity, there's carbon getting locked away, and you don't have the same inputs as you do like fertilizer and the, let's say the carbon footprint of traditional agriculture. So it's a very, very nice process from I see. Yeah, and then and then on so correct, there's, there's no fresh water input, there's no fertilizers or chemicals, uh, there's no land use as such there's water use you know in most of the places we're looking at the the sea is vast and underused or where it's used it's used in a in in a in a more extractive fashion but we are industrializing the sea and i i share the concerns of some people who see that as a problem but then the end products i'd like to talk about a bit because when you when you use biostimulants so, so i i grew up in on the outskirts of toronto where i grew up in toronto but we had a a place outside where my parents still live in Ontario. And we moved to organic farming 20, 25 years ago. And the motivation of the, the farmer who came to ask my father to share crop with him was not really idealistic. It was purely cash. He'd gone and stripped some, some old swampland and realized that the productivity of that land was phenomenal till he'd farmed it for four or five years and then it degraded to the same productivity and you know the penny dropped and he thought what are we doing how can we be farming in a way that we are degrading the land and what we pass on to our grandchildren or our children as an inheritance is worth less than what we started with that's not right that's not that's not how a farmer wants to think you're not a farmer then you're mining you're extracting and you're putting nothing back and 
this 25-year trajectory of watching how that farming has gone, which was very difficult initially. The premium you got for your organic product was frankly pretty poor. The effort was there. There was no banking support. So you're you know, doing conventional farming. The banks are ready. They, they fund all these chemicals and, because the whole system is there. I'm not saying there's anything evil in this. There's no lobby. It's just the system is set up for it. Everybody could see their self-interest. You move to organic farming, suddenly they want their loans back from the chemicals. You've got three years for your transition. Till you see your premiums is quite a while. You have to put much more effort in. But if you stick with it, what you see is that your your yields improve, your soil improves, and you start to see that you're creating a farm that is becoming more valuable by the day or by the year rather than less valuable. And at the same time that is paying the bills, your inputs in cash are less, so you you take less loans. Your input in work is higher, but your your returns are much better. So you're much more robust against price changes, aside from the fact that you're, you're working towards something that you're leaving to your children that's worth more than what you what you inherited from your parents. And I think that's a very, very important moral imperative we have as human beings, on, not only on an individual scale, but on a social scale. And so biostimulants, I think, are a, an important, it's not a silver bullet, but an, it's an important tool in that toolbox that allows farmers to start to farm scientifically, to move away from the stigma that this whole industry had, that it was sort of homeopathy and it's all for hippies and for the small niche buyers who want to get some organic avocados. Move it away from that. It's not about that. It's about creating more wholesome products at a better, at a competitive or better price that do not degenerate the soil, that don't poison rivers, that don't poison the land that that you're trying to pass to your children. There's nothing dishonorable about that. There's nothing, you know, there's only good stuff about that. And the economics do work from from our personal experience. But... Adding something into the toolbox as powerful as, as these as these uh, marine hormones essentially is is I think a, a notable thing that we would be doing. So it's what I personally find most inspiring about the whole thing is that from A to Z, from the from the forestry because we call it forestry rather than farming. That's what it feels like. And we because we're we're growing forests. It's giant kelp. So contrary to most seaweed farming, we're not stripping all the plants away. Every year, we grow forests that are about 15 meters high, and we trim the canopy. Much has been done in, has been done in California for for over 100 years, and so that whole forest is still there and, and and regrowing. So from the forestry down to the end consumer, we are ensuring that investors, consumers, everybody's bottom line gets better, but the planet is not suffering as a result. And this is the this is the in the broadest sense this is the direction in which humanity needs to go. We need to move away from the sort of hardwired assumption that to progress as human beings somebody else will need to suffer. This is not a zero sum game. We we are smart enough. We are smart enough as as technical and philosophical people to find solutions wherein which in which we can thrive but not at the expense of nature. That in fact we can find solutions where we can thrive and we can regenerate and improve nature. And a quick question, just to get a sense of where your operation is at now. Is it more of an experimental facility, or do you have a pre-production facility? Where would you say you're at in the in the process of development? Yeah, so we we just got uh, we got licensed to start 
pilot operations in Namibia in the middle of last year. We've just put in some uh, some experimental lines, and this is really more to train the, the teams and to practice what we're doing rather than that we're too fussed about the results. We expect in about March to be putting in, um, to start putting in a one and a half hectare pilot, which will hopefully take us less than three, four months to do. It's, you know, it's quite far offshore. It's quite deep. We're in a remote area. There aren't, there isn't access to much um, by way of vessels and infrastructure. So there's a lot of DIY involved in a hostile climate. So we hope by May, June this year to have a, to have a pilot fully installed. And then depending on climatological conditions, it could be as fast as seven or as slow as 12 to 18 months before we have a full full length forest sort of 15 meters high 20 meters on the canopy and we can start seeing what the economic fundamentals are of harvesting that etc and of course as we go along we'll be doing we are already doing experimental biotech piloting to produce the sort of end product that we would uh, envisage selling to, to to customers so we can get that revenue line uh, recognized by investors and bankers we are looking already at the carbon impacts, at the biodiversity impacts. So we have we have a number of MSc students that we sponsor at the University of Namibia who are focused on the geochemistry, on the biodiversity, building up a database of eDNA, uh, species recognition, acoustics. It's great fun. A lot of it's jumping into the water. Very cold. I was in the water this morning, 12 degrees. So even a good wetsuit uh, after half an hour, you've, you feel like a good long sleep. <laughs> So, uh, yeah. Yeah, I can imagine. Short, it's early days. It's early days. Yeah, have- it's early days. Yeah, and I, I can appreciate how uh, compared to like, you know, what what I know of forestry over here in British Columbia, we're talking about trees. So so 12 months, 18 months, that's a very uh, short time span to actually get yeah. uh, that much. So that's the, the beauty of that product. And, and how do you see that playing out in the future? When would you get to a stage where you would have your first production run and really starting to get into the market? So, I mean, we and our investors are very gung-ho to, to, I think we have a good understanding of most of the economic fundamentals of this. The question, of course, is technical viability of our, of our structures in, in the open ocean and yield. So not unimportant ones, but a lot of the other stuff, which is quite complex, processing, harvesting cells, uh, there's confidence that that's within good enough uh, error, uh, margins of error to move forward very rapidly. So we would like to be in a position somewhere this time next year to already be triggering the commercial phase and start planning to put in the sort of hundreds of hectares scale at which you can show that at scale this has a, a deep impact, that it is profitable, and that you can move forward and expand. So in, in parallel and in anticipation of that, we are also working with a number of other countries to start getting licenses. In many countries, these licenses can take quite a long time. So we're doing that in parallel because there's no time to waste. If this is a great nature-based solution, then we'd like to be rolling it out rapidly in in many places. But early days. We've got a few things to prove yet. Well, it's nice to see because there are, there are a couple, I know even in our local area, there's another company doing something similar with, with kelps. We've seen quite a bit of this. So what do you predict is going to be the future for this industry in the next 10, five to 10 years? I think, so yeah, in, in, in your area, I think notably Cascadia seaweed are, are, are great friends of ours. We, uh, we talk to a lot, Seagrove in Alaska, 
also a great bunch. And there, and there are a lot of lot of different uh, people around the planet doing all different things. Um, most of them working very collaboratively. Uh, so it's a it's a very exciting industry to be in at the moment. I'd say slightly overhyped, perhaps. Some people are sort of selling it as the solution to everything. I think I think we need to be a bit cautious about that. There is a lot to be proven yet. Um, but what I what I see is that if if only one of us, and better if a few of us at the same time, can pull this from experimental pilot grant subsidy uh, philanthropic funded into a viable business at scale and I, you know th- there are viable businesses that are relatively small so the, the sort of green wave Brent Smith initiatives in on the east coast I think are great and I don't think we threaten them it's a different niche we're not after the food market but at scale it's yet to be proven in the just the hard light of investors that this is a viable model. So, so one of us, or or preferably a few of us, should should be showing that in the next yeah few years. And if if that works, then I have no doubt that it will still be a rocky road. But at least you have your first Tesla, so to speak. And I'm not saying that the <laughs> that the spectacular rise of Tesla would be imitated. But I mean somebody somebody who a trailblazer who who shows that it is possible and opens the floodgates of, of, of investors to then make their choices. Some of them will, will burn themselves and some of them will, will make right choices because just like any industry, they'll still need to pick the right team and the right place and, and there will still be biological hazard and natural risks and regulatory risks. So some people will succeed and some people won't, but at least it will start taking off and uh, allowing uh, a new sort of market to develop which, uh, which at the moment isn't there. Well, thank you for this sneak peek into your industry, and I really look forward to, to how your pilot plays out, and I really hope to see uh, it grow in the future because there's definitely lots of potential. There is, there is enormous potential. And it's, and it's great fun, that overlap between oceans and humanity and coastal communities that are always, are, are always suffering in a, in a way in, a, in, our, in our day and age in terms of the fisheries have gone down, and, and these are areas that are also full of people who are intrepid and who are able to do things with their hands and improvise and working with people like that is great. So it's, it's, uh, you know, whether we succeed or fail, we're, we're going to have an amazing time doing it. Well, thank you for your time and you know, look forward to any future updates. Thank you, Nick. Thank you for joining us today. Check us out at www.futureproof-network.com to hear our other episodes links to our YouTube channel, and to join our Future Proof Business Network. See you again in our next episode.